All right, sweet. So my name is Brennan. Like, I wasn't originally supposed to do all those announcements, but stuff happens behind the scene and sometimes you don't see it. So I got to do the announcements. It is a pleasure to get to talk to you more tonight. But I wanted to introduce myself before we dive into everything we're about to hit. So my name is Brennan. I have been here at Grace Point for a little over five years and I moved up here from Sioux Falls. And when I moved up here, I came as an SDSU student. So I studied economics and communication studies. You're gonna hear a little bit about what the econ program's like here in a second, but uh, when, when I finished graduating college, I just began working here at Grace Point. And to be honest, they can't get rid of me. Like, I just keep, like, stepping into these different roles. And so now I claim the role of college and adult pastor, which means I get to be y'all's pastor, which is, like, the best job in the world because none of you, I hope, were forced to be here, right? You all chose freely to be here. That doesn't happen most places. Like if you go to youth group, like a bunch of kids there, you're straight babysitting because their parents dropped them off. Like they have no interest to be there. But y'all, you're here, you wanna be here, you're diving in, you're engaged, and that makes my job as a pastor super easy. Besides that, the only thing that you probably need to know about me is I have been married for two years, so yes, I have a little bit of bling on my finger. Yeah. My wife is incredible. She's one of the greatest humans ever, and here is a picture of us. There we are. Two years ago, I think I still look pretty good. Uh But yeah, a little over two years we've been married and that's all you need to know about me. Throughout the year, you're gonna get more stories because I can't help but talk about myself. Like it just, it just happens. And we are starting a brand new series called Framework. And Framework at its core, the heart of what we want to teach you is a discipleship series. And here's the catch. When I say the word discipleship, A lot of us bring our own definition to the table. We have our own preconceived notion on what that looks like. And that's not going to fly for this series. So I want us to get all on the same page right away. And for the rest of the year, we're going to roll with this definition. So if you're a note taker, get your pens out, pull your phone out. And here it is, the very first point of the Oasis New Year. Discipleship is being spiritually formed into the image of Christ for the glory of God and the good of others. I'll say it one more time. Discipleship is being spiritually formed into the image of Christ for the glory of God and the good of others. And in that, there's a whole lot of things I'd love to explain to you, but I need you to stick with that definition because we'll see later what happens when different definitions start to fight over what's the truth. So in order to do discipleship, in order to do what I just read to you, we first have to understand who is Jesus? Because we cannot be spiritually formed into the image of Jesus unless we first know who that guy is. So if you missed it, that picture right there in the middle, probably not a perfect rendition, but a a decent rendition of what maybe Jesus could have looked like. He would have been Middle Eastern um, because that's where he was from and he probably didn't have those exact colors. But that's the best I could come up with because I didn't want to give you white Jesus. So you got that. And we need to first understand who Jesus is, what he did, so that we can follow him. But I need to ask you a question first. And I I hope you answer correctly um, and that you're like me. Who in the room, before you commit to something, you first need to know what you're committing to? Like, yeah, yeah, thank you. That's awesome when you guys participate. That's so good. Yeah, like all y'all people who like in your head were like, I don't know what this guy's talking about. Y'all are nuts. Like I need to know like exactly what I'm committing to before I first commit to it. 
So this is a book. If you are new to Oasis, welcome. You learned something. This is a book. And on the front cover, there is a title for this book. And that will tell you a little bit about what the book's about. Or you might go down the cover and you might read the author. And when you read the author, you might recognize the name. And you're like, oh, I've read something else by him. And it tells you a little bit more. But if you're one of those nut jobs who cracks open the front cover and just starts going to town, like, let's talk. Like, let's, let's figure you out. Because really what you should do is you need to flip to the back cover and find out what the book's about. Or if there's no back cover, like, there's an insert. Like, we, nobody commits to something that's 300 pages without first understanding what's in it. I read the book over the summer. Great book if you're looking for a book. But you, nobody goes to a movie in the theater without first watching the, the trailer. Nobody watches a show on Netflix without first catching the trailer. Like, you want to know what you're committing to before you commit to it. And the reason I say that is because, one, a lot of y'all just came out of your first weeks of college, whether first week back or first week ever. And some of y'all, if you're adults in the room or young adults in the room, like, you probably maybe went to college. And when you do college, what is the first week typically called? Syllabus week. That's what I'm talking about. Some of you love syllabus week and some of you hate it. I was one who had really mixed emotions on it. And the reason I liked it is because that piece of paper defines what that semester will look like you and pretty, what, your, what that semester will look like for your life, right? If that piece of paper is full of assignments and papers and projects, like life might get a little bit more crazy. And so I need to tell you an experience that I had when I was a senior at SDSU studying economics. I needed one last elective. Elective is a fancy word. They're like, hey, you can take a class you want. They're lying. Like, you still have to take a class they want you to take. But so they gave me like three. They were all these econ classes and they were all like 400 levels. So if you know SDSU and how that, I think it works generally everywhere, but 400 levels harder than like a 200 level. And so I picked one class that was microeconomic policy. Yeah, some of you are like, ooh, that sounds disgusting. To me, I was like, that sounds awesome. Like at one point I wanted to do pre-law, like I wanted to do uh, politics and different stuff like that. So I was like, macroeconomic policy, this sounds incredible. I saw who the professor was, so I had the title. I saw who the professor was and I was in. Then I showed up for the first day and I kid you not, I'm sitting at the desk and I'm looking around and I see some uh, just people that I've taken classes with before and I was like, oh yeah, like I know you, like I'm excited you're in here. And the professor walks in and by somehow he had had someone write a grant that covered all of our textbooks. So he went to each and every desk and I swear it was like he was like slouching and he just like dropped a huge stack of books on each student's desk. And right away I'm thinking, oh, please, dear Jesus, don't be, don't have to read all of these. And he starts going through the syllabus and each and every week there's seven, eight, nine, twelve chapters you need to read. And after you read these chapters, you're going to take a quiz. And he's telling us how hard these quizzes are. It's like, dude, at least bluff. But he, like, he's telling us, oh yeah, the average on the quiz will probably be like a C. And I'm like, oh my gosh, because I'm not really going to read it, so I'm going to get a D, you know, like... Uh, and then you keep going and he starts talking about all the papers you're going to write and all the tests you're going to take. And he's telling you about that group project nobody in their right mind wants to do. And I tell you what I did. I turned the corner, the second class ended, and I found a chair and I pulled out my, my, my Mac and I sent an email to my advisor and I dropped that class before I left the building. Like, <laughs> I am not playing. I was like, this guy is out of his mind. I'm a senior. I am not doing this. 
So I went and I talked to my advisor and I ended up signing up for uh, (laughs) farm and ranch management. (laughs) Which most of y'all don't know me. When you get to know me, that don't make no sense in the world. Uh, I have never milked a cow. I have never driven a tractor. Like I can maybe like tell you like what corn looks like when it's in the grocery cart. But like I, I am not agricultural, but I had taken accounting. And so I was like, fine, I'll take farm and ranch management. It's two learning level class. And it was one of the greatest decisions I ever made in my entire life because everybody kept coming back to me telling me how terrible macroeconomic policy was. And uh, <laughs> I'll tell you this, I was really glad the professor was honest with me. Because if he would have pulled up, and if we, we were sitting in macroeconomic policy, but he would have slipped me farm and ranch syllabus, like the whole semester would have been turmoil for me because I would have been burnt out and exhausted and frustrated because I wouldn't have committed to what I thought I was committing to. And I appreciated his honesty at least. And so tonight, I'm going to be honest with y'all. Because when it comes to Christianity, a lot of us have been fed a broken view of what it actually is. And because of that, we get into churches and we get frustrated and we start to burn out and we get, it's just, it's really hard because we're coming in with the wrong definition. We don't understand what it means to be Christian and and it doesn't work. So I'm going to be honest and I'm going to tell you what Christianity is. And because of that, I brought my Bible up here because anytime we're going to teach out of Oasis, we're going to teach out of the word of God. And if you were to have a Bible in your lap and you flip it to the back cover, shocker, There's no synopsis, like there's no, or like synopsis, that's the word I'm looking for. Like there's no couple paragraphs that tell you what these couple thousand pages are. It's like, yo God, I don't know if you knew, but like I like to read the back of the book. But if you were to flip open the Bible, if you landed at Mark 8, I think you get just a beautiful picture of what it means to be a Christian. So turn with me to Mark 8 and starting in verse 27, we're going to read a couple verses. Verse 27 says this, Jesus and his disciples went, went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked them, who do people say that I am? And they replied, some say you're John the Baptist, but some say you're Elijah, but yet still others, they might call you one of the prophets. And Jesus turns to them and he says, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, he steps up, he's like about to knock it out of the park, he says, You are the Messiah. And Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. And right here in three verses, you get your first definition of who is Jesus. Who is Jesus? Well, let me tell you, just like Peter did, Jesus is the Messiah. But let me also tell you this, what Peter thinks of the Messiah and what Jesus thinks of the Messiah couldn't be worlds, couldn't be more far apart. Because Jesus, or because Peter, he was rolling with this group of disciples. It was these people who, who had banded together and Jesus had called, and many of them came from the Jewish community. So if you took Peter, and then you zoomed out, there'd be like the disciples, like the 12. And then if you zoomed out more, there'd be another group that's like 70. And if you zoomed out more, there's the whole Jewish religion. Well, the Jewish religion had this tradition, this thing that they did, where most boys and some females went to school for 13 years and they studied the Torah and Jewish religion. It's just what they did. It's like Catholic school on steroids, but for Jewish people. Like, they went and they studied and they studied and they studied, and for 13 years, Peter was trained into a definition of the Messiah. 
They taught him every day who the Messiah was. And so he saw a king. He saw a ruler. He saw a conqueror. He saw a liberator. He saw a warrior. Messiah actually translates anointed one. He thought he had found the chosen one when he found Jesus. Because he'd seen some of the miracles Jesus was doing. He'd followed him for a period of time. And so he thought, this guy has to be the Messiah I have learned about my whole life. And the Jews, they believed the Messiah was coming not to do what Jesus did, but to come to overthrow Rome. Because at that time, Rome was oppressing the nation of Israel. They weren't letting them live free. They weren't letting them worship free. They weren't letting them live life like they wanted to. So they were being oppressed. And they thought this Messiah was coming to establish Jewish dominance across the world. That he would usher in peace. And he would be the king, the ruler, the conqueror, the liberator, the warrior, the anointed one. But Jesus, he sees something else. Verse 31 Jesus then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed, and after three days he rises again. And now, in one verse, we have what Jesus does. Because when it reads there, it says, the Son of Man must. The Son of Man is a title Jesus commonly refers to himself as, and it, t- and it points back to Daniel 7, but really in this, in this verse he's saying, I must do this. And the first thing he says he must do is he must suffer and be rejected. And everybody's like, what? Like, you're the, you're the Messiah. Suffer and rejected. And I once heard this quote, that too often we think Jesus only suffered on the cross, but Really, Jesus lived a life of suffering. That from the moment he's born to the moment he's crucified, he's rejected and misunderstood and not, and people just, they they mistreated Jesus because of who he claimed to be. But not only that, he has to suffer and be rejected, but the second thing he says he's going to do is he's going to be killed. And they're like, oh my, killed? But Jesus is like, okay, it's fine, it's fine, it's fine. Like, hold on, I'm going to rise. And I think they kind of take a a deep breath, but to be honest, I don't know if they really do. Because anywhere we see difference in definition, conflict can arise. And so verse 32 and 33 say this. He spoke plainly about this. Jesus told them plainly all that he was to do, and Peter took him aside, and he began to rebuke Jesus. But then Jesus turned back, and he looked at his disciples, and he rebuked Peter. He said, get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. And if I was to break it down, it kind of looks like this. Like, Peter's, Peter's a little bit of a leader. Like, he wants to represent the boys well. So he's like, okay, Jesus, you are fumbling it. Like, there is a de- there is something you're supposed to do, and everything you just said is wrong. So he's like, okay, Jesus, let's, let's talk, but let's talk, let's talk. And he pulls him over, and you see he like puts his arm around him, because he like pulls him away from the disciples. He's like, Jesus, okay, so the Messiah, the Messiah actually, they're a ruler, they're a king, they're a warrior, you're the anointed one. And you can see he's reminding Jesus of who he believes he is. Like, he's trying in tenderness, the word is rebuke, but he's pulled him aside and he's trying to remind Jesus that you can't be rejected by those people. The teachers of the law, the elders, the chief priests, those are the top of the top. 
Like if Jesus is going to be the Messiah, he needs the, 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 the people that he just declared that are going to reject him. Those are the very people he needs to get there, Peter thinks. If you're rejected by those people, there's no way we're making it. And he says, killed? How are you supposed to bring Israel to power again if you're dead? And Jesus turns back to Peter. <laughs> and poor Peter, he like brings Peter back in front of all the disciples to rebuke him. And it's like, I don't know if that's ever happened to you or your parents are like, I'm going to let your brother and sister see this. But he brings him back in front of the disciples and he says, get behind me, Satan. Because Peter, in his mind, he only had the concerns of man. Everything he'd been trained into, everything he knew, in his own intellect, in his own assumptions, blocked that which was God wanted to do. And so he says, get behind me, Satan. And Satan here is used different than it would be in our time. In our time, Satan has become the name of the adversary. It's a personified word. But when it's used here in the text, when they would throw it out here, really it meant anything that was opposing the kingdom of God. It didn't have the personification that we necessarily use it as. So Satan is not somehow manifested in Peter and he's not like whispering in Peter's ear, but rather what Peter has just said is a lie and it's contrary to the kingdom of God and Jesus isn't going to have it. <laughs> and the best example I can give to you of this is if you were to ask Ben his thoughts on Harry Potter, <laughs> he would tell you, Ben is the, he is the former Oasis pastor. He would tell you, that Harry Potter is demonic or satanic. And some of you are like, I'm never talking to Ben again. But Ben is not talking that, what is it, J.K. Tolt? What's the, what's the author? J.K. Rowling, Rowling, whatever. He's not saying like she's possessed. He's not saying that Satan's a main character. He's speaking hyperbolically that says that book is opposing the kingdom of God. Now, Feel free to take your own take. If, if you like Emma Watson, like I like Emma Watson, I'm probably still going to watch Harry Potter. But my wife knows. Everybody chill. Uh, but it's an incredibly harsh rebuke because it's that severe. Because here, listen to this. If Peter can't understand the messiahship, he'll never get discipleship. If Peter doesn't understand what Jesus has come to do, Peter will never understand what he's supposed to do. If we don't understand who Jesus is and what he came to do, we will never know what we're supposed to do. So let's look there. How do we follow Jesus? Verse 34, then the crowd, then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and he said, whoever wants to be my disciple, that person must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. And so Jesus has flipped the script here. Remember he said, the son of man must. He said, I must. But now he changes and he says, whoever wants to be my disciple must. You must deny yourself. You must deny yourself. And I'm not talking just like the sinful piece. I'm talking your whole self. Because yeah, it's easy to point the finger and say, uh, 
drunkenness, okay, Jesus, yeah, fine, that's got to go. Pornography, sexual sin, that's got to go. Lust, uh, uh, pride, sin, uh, selfishness, all that stuff, okay, fine. Like, I get that has to go. I see that in the scripture. I understand that's what you're calling me to. But when Jesus says here, it's not just deny your sinful self. It's deny yourself, your whole self. That means your will, your desires, your pursuit, your flesh, your heart, your mind, that all now takes a back seat so that Jesus can get the driver's seat. It's our whole entire life reoriented around who Jesus is. And here's the beauty of it. I don't think Jesus calls you to that unless he first does it himself. If you were to open your Bible, you don't have to, but if you were, trust me, and flip to Matthew 4. Matthew 4 is this passage of text where Jesus has been led into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit, and there he has not eaten or drank for 40 days, and at the end of that 40 days, Satan shows up in what is, he thinks, Jesus' weakest moment, and he tempts Jesus three times. In one of those temptations, he takes Jesus up to the mountaintop, and he says, look at everything you can see. If you've ever climbed a mountain, just like, you can see so far. And he says, look at everything you can see. If you'll bow down right now and worship me, I'll give it to you. And we commonly think that Satan is lying. Because that's what he does. He comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But in this moment, I actually don't think he's lying. Satan has some kind of weird power and authority here on earth. And if Jesus would have got down and bowed and worshipped Satan... I think Satan could have given him what he wanted. He could have given him the authority and the power and the kingdom and, and, the, and, and, everything, and everything he could have ever wanted, he would have had in an earthly kingdom. But Jesus turns back to Satan and he says this. Check this out. He says, away from me, Satan. It's almost like we've heard that before. It's almost like Jesus had practiced being who Jesus was And he says, away from me, Satan, because while he could have gotten all that, that's not how it was supposed to go, and God had something bigger in mind. So I know you probably hate the fact that I told you, you need to throw all of who you are into the back seat so that Jesus can take the wheel. (laughs) What's the song, Carrie Underwood? Yeah, Yeah. I had zero intention to quote Carrie Underwood, but what happens, happens. Uh, And Jesus is going to take the wheel, and he's going to take you someplace greater than you could ever take yourself. And so then he tells you to do a second thing. And he says, take up your cross. And when he says this to the audience he's speaking to, it doesn't connect like it connects with us. Because we have the crucifixion. We have have the resurrection. We have the, the hindsight knowledge of knowing what Jesus is talking about here. They didn't. The crowd who was gathered around, when he says, take up your cross, to them they would have heard, take up your instrument of death. Like when you get a cross cross, uh, necklace or you get like a tattoo, uh, tattoo of a cross, really what you're putting on your body is an instrument of torture used by the Roman Empire. Like it has the equivalent today to like the lethal injection. Like, imagine if Jesus step or I step up here, whoo, this will be wild. I step up here and I'm like, everybody, embrace lethal injection. Like, whew, someone check on that guy. 
But that's what Jesus said. It was an instrument of death, of torture. But in this moment, he wanted them to understand something. He wanted them to embrace the hardship and the suffering that can accompany the gospel. Because look at his life. He suffered from birth to death. He died on that very cross he calls them to take up. And so, a couple of weeks ago, I got my first tattoo. You can't really see it, but I shouldn't have wore long sleeves. But right there, it is a nail. Um, And it is the most permanent sermon illustration I'll ever have in my life. And I got this tattoo because I've always read Philippians 3, 10, and 11 and just been dumbfounded at how Paul speaks. He says, I want to know Christ. I want to be his disciple. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection. That's the good stuff. But I also, I want to participate in his suffering. I want to become like him in death. And that through that somehow, by some way, I might experience the resurrection. And so I tattoo something like this permanently on my skin forever because I want my life, my heart, my actions, and everything I do to say, I want to know Christ. I I don't care what stands in the way. I don't care what hardship and what suffering. I'm willing to bear it because I think knowing Christ, participating in his resurrection and his power, I think it's worth it. Paul says again in Romans 12, 1, he says, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. That's to take up your cross, to give everything you have, to deny yourself, and to endure what could be hardship because giving your life away for Jesus is worth it. And now if you're new here tonight, you might be like, yo, this message is like low-key kind of terrible. (laughs) Uh, That dude up there is depressing. Like, deny yourself. Like, I really wanted to go to med school. And this guy's like, oh, actually, you're going to be a janitor. Or like, the guy up there is like, oh, yeah, yeah, take up your lethal injection. Uh, And you're like, this message sucks. (laughs) And I would stand up here and say, yeah, those are hard. But again, I want to be honest with you. I don't want to call you to anything less than God calls you to. In the first two, they only become so beautiful when we find the third one. And the third thing Jesus asks us to do is he says, follow me. So will you follow Jesus? Because following Jesus, that's where life is found. His third thing that he did himself when he says the son of man must is he rises from the dead. And when he rises from the dead, he finds eternal life forever and ever for himself, but for you. It's a both and kind of thing. And this is the moment when the disciples, they finally understand who Jesus was. Because some of them, they straight deny him. Some of them, they turn away. Some of them, they cower in fear because they thought he was this one person. But they never understood until he appeared to them with holes in his hands, a hole in his side, whip marks on his back, and he would pass through a wall into a room and he'd sit and he'd eat a meal with them. And they'd be like, whoa, 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 whoa. you're dead. (laughs) But somehow he's there. And don't take just the disciples' word for it. Take the hundreds of people in scripture and outside who testified to Jesus' life death, and resurrection. And when he rises, he finds eternal life, and then eternal life is promised for you. But he doesn't just stop there. That's, I mean, that would be enough. 
but he doesn't just stop at eternal life and being saved from death. He promises you something else. Maybe you know this verse, and if you, if you want, you be bold, you can say it with me. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. That's not just escaping the fire of hell. That's embracing eternal life today. And eternal life today looks like finding an identity in Jesus that says John 1.12 is true for me because I've embraced it, that I am a child of God and I have worth, I have value no matter what happens in life and no matter what anybody says to me. That's security. People, are you struggling with anxiety? Are you struggling with insecurity? Do you love yourself? Jesus offers you identity. But he doesn't just offer you identity, he, he offers you purpose. Matthew four nineteen. come follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. One of the greatest questions, one of the biggest questions that people ask in life is, what am I here for? Wonder no more. Jesus gives you purpose. You are here to live with him, to follow him, and to fish for others. To be sent out to give grace. Galatians 5, Paul comes back and he says, these are the fruit of the Spirit. This is what the Spirit offers you if you find life in Jesus. It's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. And yeah, I think I got them all. Uh, But think about life that looks like that. Where you walk into a room and your life is marked by love and peace. Where you get into a relationship and you're not looking for them to fulfill you with joy because you already have joy. Like, what would it look like if a bunch of people started living in the fruit of the Spirit and were kind and good? That they were faithful and they practiced self-control. I mean, look at what life with Jesus could be. So I'll ask you another question. What's the world promise you? Seriously, think about it. Like, I am up here speaking on behalf of God, which absolutely radically blows my mind. And I'm promising you these things because he's promised them to you. What's the world promise you? Does it promise you fulfillment? That when you get a college degree and you buy a house and you have a family and you're married, finally then you'll feel fulfilled. When you get a 401k and you have a corner office and you have the career you've always dreamed of and you're a CEO or you're a sports athlete, then you'll find fulfillment. Then you'll find purpose. It promises you happiness, not joy. Happiness is circumstantial so that what happens to you affects who you are. Joy is not like that. Joy says, no matter what happens to me, I'm rooted in God and I can have joy. What's the world promise you? If you're a college student, (laughs) I also graduated from SDSU, so you don't have to drop out. But what's a college degree promise you? A greater salary? Do commas in your bank account give you the purpose and identity you need to live this life? If you can answer those questions and say yes to all that, Go try it. I could have sat up here and read quote after quote of celebrity and famous person and rich person who will tell you that's not true. That they haven't found it in what the world is promising. Remember what Peter was guilty of. Right? He gets called Satan 
And what's he guilty of? Raising the concerns of man and diminishing the concerns of God. I want you to hear this. Don't buy the lie the world is trying to feed you and submit and not submit to what God is calling you to. It's so, so important because here it is, verse 36. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their very soul? That's everything. Your soul is everlasting. It's eternal. Don't trade it for temporary pleasures. In summary, Jesus is the Messiah. Peter didn't understand what that meant, but he still said it right. He is the Messiah, the Son of God, come anointed and chosen to save us all. But yet he chose rejection and suffering and death. And when he was in heaven and he decided to come down as a six six pound, eight ounce baby Jesus, he knew what he was committing to. He knew what life would hold for him. But he was willing to pay it because on the other side of it, he knew there'd be greater life. And so for us, now I hope you know what it means to be a Christian. That despite who our Christian role models have been, despite who we feel like has pointed us in the right direction, despite who what our sermons we've listened to, our books we've read, this is the word of God. And it's calling you to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Jesus to amazing, amazing life. Now that's the picture. In, three, in the next three weeks, we're going to expand on what it looks like to be discipled. Because it's so, so worth it. And I would miss the, the point, Jaina and the worship team can come up. I would miss the point if I didn't offer you an opportunity to step into what God is inviting you into. Not for me. This is for you. That in 1 John, or John 1, 12, it says, to those who did believe him, who received him, he gave the right to become children of God. That right is a choice you get to make. I'm not forcing you. I'm, I told you. I presented what I believe is facts, what I feel like the word of God says is truth. Now you make your choice. But here, make it with this in mind. Verse 35, for whoever wants to save their life, that person will lose it. But whoever loses their life, denies themselves, takes up their cross, and follows me, if they do that for the sake of the gospel, they'll save it. And so I'm going to pray, and I'm going to invite you to accept the gospel, the good news that is Jesus Christ and what he's done for you. And so I'll ask you to bow your heads, and I just thank you, Father. I thank you for who you are. I thank you that you love us. And even in this moment, there are hundreds of people in this room and each and every one of them, Father, you love uniquely. Drastically, they love, you love them. And you demonstrated that very love in the fact that you sent your only son. And Jesus came and I thank you for who he was. I thank you for who Jesus was and I thank you for what he did. That he was tempted to trade it all for something lesser, but God, you helped him. 
do only what you could do. And through suffering and rejection and death, he bought us life. And I thank you for that, Jesus. And so, Father, tonight, you see the hearts of the people in the room in a way that I never could. And I want, God, you to just prompt and give people a response to what you're doing inside of them. And so, I'm just going to ask in a couple of seconds, if you want to accept the gospel, the very good news that Jesus loves you, he died for your sin, and now he has bought you life, identity, purpose, acceptance only in him, would you raise your hand? And I say that, again, I say that because I think when your hand goes up in the air, it just solidifies something that God is doing in you. And so don't leave this place not connecting with someone. We have a next steps table out in the info desk where we just love to get you resourced because this is not the end of the journey, it's the beginning with Jesus. So Father, we come back to you and we just praise you for tonight that you have done what only you can do. And we exalt the name of Jesus above all else. And we will continue to praise you because you're worthy. And we thank you. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.